All right. Uh, last week we finished off with uh, Saul being chosen as king. Uh, there were a couple of comments that were made after that I, I thought I would bring to light because uh, I thought they were helpful to us. One being uh, Saul's heart being changed shows us something very important. That fact is that a heart can be changed, right? That's important to us because we need to change our hearts on a regular basis so that we can be more like Christ each and every day. Second point, an important thing to note, Saul is given several uh, signs that he has been chosen as king, right? He's told, he's given this prophecy of all these different events that are going to occur on his way back home, and all of those things occur. And that's important because when he's chosen, where is he? Hiding in the luggage, right? Would he be hiding if he didn't believe that he was supposed to be king? No, he wouldn't, right? And so that kind of shows that those signs had an impact on Saul. He now believes that he is that chosen one. Maybe he was running from his responsibilities a little bit, but he does believe now, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have hidden. So chapter 11 opens up with a a different person, right? So Saul is chosen as king. Samuel sends everybody home. Saul's chosen as king. Everyone goes home, even Saul, right? Everybody just goes back home. And then chapter 11, we open up and begin with our first question of the evening with this man named Nahash. What kind of man is Nahash? Yeah, he's bad, right? He's cruel. He's a tyrant, right? He's a brute. He's an Ammonite. And he's besieged the city of Jabesh Gilead, right? He's besieged the city. And how is he significant to the story of Saul? Uh, specifically in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 12, how is Nahash significant to Saul? Right, it's going to be the first time that Saul's been a king. Um, Specifically, though, in chapter 12, verse 12, this seems to be, this Nahash seems to be one of the reasons why the children of Israel ask for a king in the first place. Right, he's been subjugating them, he's been you know, torturing them, I guess, and, and possessing their land, stealing from them, uh, you know, causing them harm and difficulty for a long enough period or a significant enough period that they demand a king because of him, right? And so now he has besieged the city of Jabesh Gilead, and the men of Jabesh Gilead, in an attempt to save lives, right, to save themselves, agree to what? Well, what do they attempt to do, really? Yeah, they're going to make a covenant with Nahash. And how's that going to help them? <clears throat> yeah, if we serve you, you won't besiege us, you won't war against us, you won't take our stuff, right? We serve you and you'll just leave us alone, is the hope, right? But how does that go over with Nahash? He has a condition, right? He's got conditions. He wants the right eye, right? The right eye of, uh, gouge out the right eye of every one of you. And then I'll make a reproach on the children of Israel. But yeah, I'll, I'll enter into that agreement, right? Nahash is not the type of person that I would trust to follow through on his word, right? Uh, he's besieged a city. He's proved himself that he doesn't really care about the Israelites at all, right? But he's going to uh, give them, okay, I'll enter into this agreement on this condition, right? And that condition is, again, just showing his cruelty and his, uh, his nature. But, you know, that, is that an a acceptable deal? 
You know, if you're the people of Jabesh Gilead, well, maybe, you know, if you're trying to convince everybody in town, look, guys, we could, you know, just serve this guy with one eye. It'll affect our death. Lee, does it affect your depth perception? You know, oh, yeah. So it's, it's trouble, right? But is it worth it? And I think the answer is no, right? Obviously, no, it's not a worthy deal. But I think this is a, an interesting point and something that we need to think about. How often in the world today, we don't find ourselves necessarily in this specific situation, right? We're not under siege and having to worry about our life being taken. But how often today do we find ourselves in situations that the world makes us uncomfortable, the world makes us feel out of sorts, um, and, and there's this push to make a deal, right? There's this push to make a deal, maybe give up something and in order to alleviate some of that awkwardness, right? Alleviate some of that stress, alleviate some of that hardship that we have to go through, right? It's not, it's not gouging your eye out, but maybe you have to give up, you know, your, your morality. Maybe you have to give up some of your good name. Maybe you have to give up your honesty. Maybe you have to, you know, and the list goes on and on and on, right? You have to compromise somewhere. The world often does that to us, right? The world often wants to put us in that position because if it can put us in that position and you can compromise on something, what else is going to happen? Yeah, you'll compromise on more. You'll compromise on everything. Well, if I can justify this for this reason, then I can probably justify this for this other reason, and that goes on and on and on down the line until eventually you don't know where you began, right? Will Satan ever follow through on his end of the deal? No, right? We're told from the beginning that Satan is a liar. He's always been a liar. And liars are not trustworthy, right? They're not trustworthy. So we don't need to believe the lie, right? If you do this, then it won't be as awkward. Well, maybe for a time. But it's going to be worse later, right? If you do this, I'll leave you alone. Well, maybe you'll leave me alone for now. But how long is it going to take you to find something else that you can pick at me about, that you can try and push my buttons because you don't agree with me on this, or I make you feel uncomfortable because I believe in this moral standard, right? We have to be careful that we don't make these compromises just to save ourselves a bit of awkwardness, right? In this case, you're talking about the men of Jabesh Gilead trying to save their town, right, from... A siege. And what do we know about sieges back in this time? They're terrible, right? It's really brutally bad to go through a siege. Um, But it could be worse, right? Making this deal could be worse. You make the deal, Nahash comes in, he may gouge out your eyes, he may kill half your people, he may kill everybody just because you let him in. Who knows, right? But are you going to take him up on the deal? And the correct answer is no. We don't take them up on the deal, right? Don't believe the liar because they're a liar, right? Any comments on that? Okay, so the men of Jabesh Gilead, they tell Nahash something. They say, give us seven days. <laughs> give us seven days. We'll see if we can find somebody to save us. And then, and then if not, then we'll, we'll accept your deal which I think is kind of interesting. You're telling Nahash, hold on, we're going to see if we can find somebody to beat you. If we can't, then okay, yeah. Well, you know, it seems a little 
odd. But Nahash goes along with it, right? Maybe because, again, he's a brute, he's a tyrant, he doesn't believe they can come up with anybody because have they yet? No, right? So who are they going to get? So the men of Jabesh-Gilead send out messengers, right? And the messengers get to Saul. Uh, And where is Saul? Saul is at his home in Gabeah, right? Because, again, he's anointed king. He goes home because that's where he goes. That's where he lives, right? Goes back home. Um, And so they get to uh, Gabeah. Saul uh, sees the people there crying uh, because they've heard the words and they're weeping. Saul's been out with the cattle. He comes in. He asks what's going on, and they tell him. And in verse 6, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Why is Saul very angry? We're not told exactly, but I think there are a few things we could assume given the situation. One, this is a pagan nation that is subjugating God's people. And as the people of the Lord who are supposed to drive out all these nations, you know, someone who possesses the Spirit of God, that might make them angry, right? Who are they? You know, again, we'll talk about this later when we get to David, but who are they to try and fight against God, right? To try and prevent the people of the Lord doing what they're supposed to do. Another thing is maybe Saul's angry because nobody else is going to help the men of Jabesh Gilead, right? What are the other children of Israel doing? Well, they're not helping the people of Jabesh-Gilead right now, right? And Saul is angry. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that <clears throat> this seems to be a spirit that we're going to see later on in some other men of God, right? Where something is happening against the people of the Lord and they will not let it stand. We see that in Saul here. Later on, not so much. But right now, we see that in Saul, right? Saul is not going to let this stand. And so what does Saul do in verse 7? Right, he takes a yoke of oxen, not just the the wooden part that's binding the oxen. No, he takes the the oxen that are bound in that yoke, he cuts them to pieces, he sends them out, and he says, if you do not come... I'll do the same thing to all your cattle, right? So there's a bit of a threat with Saul uh, calling out to get some help, right? But it's effective, right? He makes this call and says, if you don't come after me and after Samuel, then so so it will be done to your oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. Saul puts out the call, and how many men does he get? 330,000. 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from Judah. He gets an army, right? Puts out the call, he gets an army. And then he sends messengers back to Jabesh Gilead, and he says, you'll be saved. You know, when the, uh, when the sun is hot, you'll be saved tomorrow. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead are very glad. They send back to Nahash, and they say, we'll come out to you at this time. And they just, you know are ready to go. Saul divides the people into three companies. They come out in the midst of the camp in the morning uh, by morning watch, and they strike down the Amorites until the heat of the day. There's uh, those, the few who survive are scattered to the point where there's not two of them going together, right? So they 
basically wipe out Nahash and his forces. Um, and they have this great victory, right? They have a, a great victory, and that leads them in verse, uh, verse 12 to tell Samuel, go get those worthless men in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27. They say specifically 1 Samuel chapter... No, they don't. But 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27, there are some worthless men who said, who's this Saul? He's not, not going to be our king, right? Saul just has this great victory. They say, bring those men and we'll kill them. And what's Saul's reaction? No. Why not? The Lord delivered, right? The Lord delivered us this day. We're not going to have the slaughter of our own people because the Lord delivered us today, right? Um, that's, you know, that's significant in a lot of ways. You see, you see this character in Saul at this time that just, you know, you want to root for, right? You're like, oh man, this could be the guy, right? This could be the king. And I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing that part of, you know, what the Lord told Samuel of this is my deliverer, right? This is the one who's going to deliver my people. And here he is. And it's exciting. And, you know, they want to take the naysayers and they want to throw them out. But no, it's not that. It's, this is the work of God, right? It's not, it's not Saul. It's not that they made a bad decision because Saul is a great guy who knows his tactics and can make this happen. No, it's, it's, the, it's the Lord who's working with Saul to make this happen, right? And Saul sees that at this time and he says, no, we're not going to put these men to death. The Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. And so then Samuel tells the people, come, let us go to Gilgal. We'll renew the kingdom there. And here comes question two from our lesson today. How many verses does the anointing of Saul take as king? Now, I know that that could be confusing because Saul gets anointed a couple different times. But, so there might be a few different answers. But what, what do you got for me? Anointing of Saul. I mean, it takes one here, right? Maybe a couple in the next in the chapter ten. Uh, you know, it's not very long. There's not a lot written there, right? And I think that's intentional. In chapter ten, when Saul is chosen as king, there's no feast, there's no celebration, there's no party, there's no woohoo, we did it, we got a king. It's this is your king. His name is Saul. Everyone go home. Right? And that seems kind of humorous, maybe. But no, this is not a good thing, right? It's not a good thing that the children of Israel rebelled against God and chose a king, and here he is. Right? That's not a good thing. So we don't need to have a party about it. We don't need to celebrate it. We don't need to praise it. We don't need to be excited about it, right? This time... We have a great victory and deliverance brought by God through Saul, who has been chosen as king, and now we are going to anoint him as king. And so in verse 15, all the people go to Gilgal. There they make Saul king before the Lord. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. So we have two things going on. We have Saul is anointed as king. We have sacrifices and peace offerings being made to the Lord. And they're rejoicing, and there's, you know, like, celebration going on here. I think the, the difference between these two things is why you then have chapter 12. 
right? Samuel is an older man. He says he's an old man. And he knows that there is a difference and there should be a separation between anointing of Saul as king and the deliverance of God that should be celebrated, right? There, there are some serious things going on here, and they don't need to get them confused, right? I think a lot of times that happens in the world where we tend to, you know, combine things that we enjoy. So, hey, let's have a potluck and let's have a singing. Neither of those things are wrong. But if you do those things together, and you do them together a lot, eventually, what are you coming together for? Are you coming together for the potluck or the singing? Is there a separation between what you're doing for the Lord and what you're doing for yourselves? I bring that up because my parents had a thing called volleyball mania. Some of you probably know about that. And it was where people came over to my parents' house and they played volleyball on the first Saturday of every month in the months of the summer, right? And my dad told me one time that he intentionally did not do anything like a singing or a Bible class or anything like that because what do people in the denominational world do? They do that, right? They have, you know, we passed a Baptist church on the way here, and they often have kids outside playing volleyball or kids outside playing basketball, and then they bring them in to teach them a lesson, right? There has to be some kind of distinction made. Otherwise, we end up getting confused, right? We end up getting confused. We put the emphasis on the wrong things. All of a sudden, we're not emphasizing God's word anymore. We're emphasizing the food, or we're emphasizing the activity, or we're emphasizing the camaraderie, or we're emphasizing the emotional high that we get, or we're emphasizing, you know, different things, right? And we're no longer emphasizing what we are doing for the Lord and to the Lord at that time. So Samuel's going to make sure everyone understands fully what is going on here, right? Any comments on that? Oh, yes. Um, I thought it was interesting that they numbered the people from Israel and Judah separately. It's like, aren't they the United Kingdom right now? That's, they're not divided yet. Right. I, I find that interesting as well. I think, you know, you're finding here an emphasis on Judah as, uh, you know, later on that will be the tribe of the king. And I think, you know, obviously there's a significant number that Judah is bringing as well. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it is interesting to see the 300,000 versus the 30 of Judah um, and that they're not all combined. Yeah. Any other comments? Okay, so Samuel begins his address to the people. And I want to go through and read this section by section because I think it's really broken down into a few different sections. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel chapter 12. It says, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed or from whose hands 
Have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. What is Samuel doing here? Yeah, he's making a distinction between him and his sons. He's establishing his credibility, right? Establishing his credibility. Am I a fraud? No, you are Samuel, right? Am I unjust? Have I defrauded anybody? Have I stolen? Have I taken a bribe? Am I going to be dishonest in any way? And they say, no, we know you. You're Samuel, right? How long had Samuel been serving them? Well, we don't know exactly, but... Since he was weaned, he was given over to then serve the Lord, right? So, a long time, right? You know, some would say all of his life was given to serve the people and to serve the Lord. And so Saul's establishing his credibility here. I think it's important to note that our, what we've done in our past has an impact at this section, right? Could Saul say, have I defrauded anybody? Have I been unjust? Have I lied to anyone if he had done those things? I mean, he could, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't help, right? It wouldn't help. would be like, oh, yeah, no, Samuel, remember you stole that, that herd of donkeys from me two weeks ago, right? That's not going to help what he has to tell them. So our, our conduct, as we talked about when we went through the Proverbs, has an impact, right? Has an impact on our lives. Our good name means something, but not just the things that we've done, but also... You know, as Samuel points out here, if I've, if I've taken anything, I'll restore it to you, right? How have we handled those situations when they have come up, right? Because that would be a record in our conduct as well, right? Well, you know, so-and-so took this from me, but they gave it back, right? They apologized. They gave me this in return as well to make good on it, you know, something like that, right? Our conduct and our behavior says something about us. Even those times that we fail and how we recover and repent and return from those things, right? And that has an impact, especially when we are having to deliver difficult information, when we're having to stand for the truth, when we're having to stand up to people that we love and tell them something that they've done that's wrong, when we're having to confront them and get them to change, when we're having to try and persuade people of the world to come and to change their lives for the better, all of that that we've done in our past can have an impact on that, right? And so we need to be aware because we don't know when that's going to come up. We don't know when that's going to occur. We need to be aware and we need to conduct ourselves appropriately. But in this case with Samuel, yes, he's found to be just, right? He's found to have that character. And, and he, Samuel says, the Lord is a witness and so is his anointed to that this day. And then he continues on in verses 6 through 11. Any comments before we move on? Okay. He starts going through this section in verses 6 through 11, talking about how the Lord has been the one to deliver them. Verse 6, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers, 
When Jacob went into Egypt, your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent uh, Jeroboam and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around, that you lived in secure, uh, security. Um, Samuel reminds them, similar to all the other times that they've been reminded about all the works of the Lord that have brought them to this place, how the Lord has delivered them. But Samuel focuses in specifically on Egypt and on the time period of the judges, right? So we have, uh, we have Jephthah, we have Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel all listed here, right? So that, you know, we're covering a big section of time, the time of the judges, where they had to be delivered from these invading armies, And each time he emphasizes that it is the Lord who did these things, right? Moses and Aaron brought you out of Egypt, but who appointed Moses and Aaron? The Lord did. The Lord brought you out of Egypt. The Lord gave you Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and helped them defeat these invading armies and bring you out of their subjugation, right? Bring you freedom from those things. But what did the people keep doing? Yeah, forgetting God, going back to the idols, forgetting God, going back to the idols, doing whatever we want because we want to do it, and that's what seems right to us, and so that's what we're going to do, and then, oh no, now we're in trouble. Okay, we repent, we'll serve you for a little bit, right? It's easy to to be hard on the children of Israel, but again, remember when we started this class that the period of the judges is a long period of time, right? A lot of generations occur during that time. It didn't just happen every second Tuesday, right? Happened over a long period of time. So how long were the people faithful? We don't exactly know. But if you think about ourselves, how long are we faithful before we make a mistake? Not 14 generations. I can tell you that much for me, right? Um, And those mistakes build up over time. The willingness of the people to obey God dwindles after, after a period of time because of those things. And if they don't have that dedication and that drive and that willingness and that desire to follow after the Lord, then they're not going to, no matter how long they get, right? But we don't need to be too hard on them because I think we, you know, again, the book of Judges is very human in nature. We resemble that book, unfortunately. And we need to use it as an example and as a warning to ourselves that we can also be wrong, right? We can also be mistaken. We can also have that heart and we need to turn back to God. Um, But Samuel's just emphasizing over and over again who the deliverer is. It's not these individuals. It's not these men. No, it's the Lord who sent these men, right? It's the Lord who's doing that. Not their new king either, but it's the Lord, right? Any comments on that section, the Lord is the deliverer? Okay, continuing on. Verses 12 through 15 
is going to be our next section here. So beginning in verse 12, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Samuel tells him, here's your king, you got it, but you rebelled against the Lord. Right? You asked for this king and you got it, but you rejected the king that you had, which was the Lord. He's putting emphasis on the action that they made and trying to get them to understand who it is that they rejected and replaced with this Benjamite. Right? You had the Lord as your king. Now you picked a man who was hiding in some baggage. That's your king now. But he also says it can be okay. You can still follow the Lord, right? If you will fear the Lord, verse 14, and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God. When Saul was anointed king in chapter 10, And chosen by the people and anointed king, Samuel wrote some things down. What did Samuel write down? Yeah, the ordinances of the king, right? And again, we talked about some of that. That's Deuteronomy chapter 17, right? There's ordinances of a king and how you shall conduct yourself with a king, how the king shall conduct themselves to follow after the Lord, right? They need to write down a copy of the law. They need to read it every night. Right? They need to study it, they need to understand it, they need to incorporate it in their life so that they will fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And in that way, they will lead them to also do the same, right? Again, the idea is you want a leader like Joshua who could drag the people kicking and streaming after the Lord as much as he could, as hard as he could, as long as he could, and in such a way that after he died, they still followed after him until all the rest of the leaders died, right? That's the kind of leader that you want. You want that leader that's going to make them do it because that <laughs> seems to be what these people need, right? So there's still a chance, right? You rebelled against the Lord, but you can still follow after his word. You just have to do it, right? That's basically what Samuel tells them. Do not rebel, fear the Lord and follow him, right? And Again, this is all coming after a victory, and we're having a feast, and we're celebrating the new king, and and the victory the Lord gave us, and Samuel gets up there and ends the party, right? Because this is serious, and they need to understand it's serious, right? There's serious consequences here that they have to take seriously, otherwise they're going to suffer them. And their king's going to suffer them as well, right? Any comments on that? Right. Saul is chosen as king, but 
the Lord still reigns, right? Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it reminds me uh, similarly of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're in prison. They're uh, not in prison. They're, they're enslaved, right, in that uh, foreign nation. They're told to bow before this idol or they will be burned to death. And they say, we don't care. Sorry. We have to follow the Lord. And the Lord could save us or the Lord could not save us, but we have to follow the Lord, right? It doesn't matter who's king. doesn't matter what the demands are. doesn't matter how awkward it is. doesn't matter the situation you're in. Doesn't matter the quote unquote situational ethics of the situation. It, I'm sorry, we have to follow the Lord, otherwise, there are eternal consequences for our souls. And that really, in essence, should be, oh no, I think freeing to us in some ways, right? You don't have to worry about the difficulty of the situation or you know, the ramifications or the, you know, what, what are these other people going to think of me if I make this decision? Well, it doesn't really matter because are you doing what the Lord says? Then you're doing the right thing and you're doing what's needed, right? makes it very linear if you think about it, right? I don't have to consider this person and this person, this person, this person necessarily. I have to think about the Lord first. If that works, then all right, let's do it. Right, exactly. Everything. Everything belongs to the Lord, and he deserves everything, including our hearts, as we said before. Any other comments? Right, right, it's true. They, the emphasis is put wholly on the Lord, and Saul is pretty much left out of the picture except for the part of, you know, if you don't, then your king will be taken away too, right? So, yeah, there's emphasis on the Lord there. Yes, Brian. In their, in their mindset here, just the whole idea of not giving God the credit for things. Um, so... I was just thinking about that. You know, that, that's what all the other nations around them did, is they had idols, and they attributed their success or their failures to the idols. Right. And here we see just a little bit of that mentality slipping in. Obviously, right now it's not directed at an idol. It's directed at, God, it's directed at this king, but it's still that same mentality that now here is a person, and he is responsible for our success or our failure, not who it should be, which is God. Right, and that, that goes along exactly with what they asked for when they went to Samuel and asked for a king, right? They said, we want a king like all the other nations. Well, what are all the other nations doing? They attribute their victory to their god or to their idol, or in some cases, to their king, who is their god and their idol, right? And so, uh, you know, again, you see that tendency as well in the judges with, you know, Gideon has that victory. He creates the ephod and then puts it up in his house, and they start worshiping it, right? Um, it, it's, it is that tendency to take that physical thing that they can see and then make that the object of their worship. Um, and that's, you're right, that's exactly what Samuel's trying to 
you know, head off here in some ways. But uh, again, it seems to be ingrained in the people. And I think that goes back to what the Lord told them at the beginning. If you don't drive out these nations, that is what's going to cause you in, to fall into idolatry. And that's kind of why they're, they're heading that way at all times. Any other comments? Okay, so in verses 16 through 18, we have this sign that Samuel gives. Uh, He says, Even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel calls to the Lord. The Lord sends thunder and rain that day. And all the people are greatly feared. uh, All the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So there's this sign that's given that, yes, you sin greatly against the Lord. Here's the sign. It's the dry season. It's going to rain and thunder. Here we go. Samuel calls to the Lord. It happens. That scares the people, right? And so as we have seen before and as Samuel already addressed in their history, verse 19, the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we we may not die We have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot provide uh, profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself." Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Question number three in our lesson is, how does fear keep us from following the Lord? Sure, sometimes it causes us to do nothing. That's true, right? Uh, Deer in the headlights, right, is an expression that we have for that. Uh, Fear causing you to do nothing, no reaction. Go ahead. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. (laughs) It's right. There is no contradiction, right, between fear the Lord and then do not fear, right? Verse uh, 14 to verse 20, right? Verse 14 says, fear the Lord. Verse 20 says, do not fear. They're not a contradiction. They're two different things, right? Fearing the Lord, having respect for God, having a respect for his authority, actually being afraid of the consequences of failing the Lord. Yes, that is motivating. That is encouraging. That provides you drive and determination to fulfill his will and to serve him the way that you should. But fear, 
as Samuel says in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 21, it says, if you turn aside, you'll go after futile things. There's a lot of scared people in the world, right? There are a lot of people in the world that are scared of a lot of things. People are afraid of water, spiders, uh, the moon, open spaces, getting illnesses, losing their mind, family members falling away, uh, anything, right? People are afraid of anything and everything. Some of those things are necessary. Some of those things are not. Some of those things are futile. We don't need to be afraid of futile things. They are only distracting, and they prevent us from doing what we're supposed to do, right? I'm a diabetic. In the future, I could have all kinds of health problems. I have no idea what they could be. I could go blind. I could lose limbs. I could have all kinds of different things happen to me. It's possible. But also, I could die tomorrow and never see any of that, right? I shouldn't let that fear keep me in a hole in my house taking vitamins and meticulously checking my blood sugar, but also not talking to anybody or doing anything or going anywhere. And I shouldn't let that cripple me, right? I shouldn't let that handicap me just because that's a fear and it could lead to futile things, right? I could do all of that and die anyway because guess what? That's what's going to happen to everybody, right? It's not a secret. I should not be afraid to confess my sins before my brethren and let them know that I have failed. Because we're commanded to do that. But sometimes that is something that we fear, right? It can take a lot of courage to come up here and confess your sins to one another so that others can pray for you. A lot of courage. So much so that some people don't because of their fear. And what is that helping you? I'll give you a heads up right now. None of us are perfect, so you're not, you know, keeping us from seeing that you're not perfect. Okay, we see that anyway. I'm sorry. It's just how we are, right? We're people. We're fallible. This idea of fear keeping us from serving the Lord and leading to futile things is important in the story of Saul because Saul is going to be someone who has a lot of fear, and it's going to lead him down some bad paths. And we have to take that to heart because fear can hinder us as well, right? There's a lot of things we can be afraid of. But we need to be afraid of the Lord. We need to fear the Lord. We need to fear not doing his will. We need to let that drive us and motivate us to put the other fears, the futile ones, the ones that lead to pointless things, worthless things, things that may never occur, that may never happen, that may never be reality, put those things behind us and Fulfill the will of the Lord, right? Do what the Lord has given us to do. Yes, Brother Bruce. Verse 19, yeah. Right. And, and how commendable is that to Samuel to be that mediator, even though the people rejected the Lord right to his face, right? But he says he will not sin in, in ceasing to pray for them. All right, thank you very much for your attention.